Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago Profiles The powers, plans and politics involved in the July Crisis are very intricate and require a certain level of background information. These profile episodes will seek to investigate the background details of the key powers involved, giving you a unique profile of each one. In this case, the profile in question focuses on Russia. Among the Great Power Camp, the Russian Empire was in fact the second youngest member, second only to Germany's new empire or Italy's recent unification. But you wouldn't know that by looking at the statistics. With the second largest empire in the world in 1897, second only to Britain, and the largest continuous land power in the world, as well as the third most populous after Britain and China, the very facts alone suggested Russia had been a major player since players had played. However, Russia in fact had only come into existence as an empire in 1721, when Peter the Great established what had once been territory owned by the Mongolian Horde, and before that the Viking successor state of Rus, into an empire ruled by a Tsar. Peter had consolidated his power upon defeating Russia's great power rival Sweden, and Russia stood as the dominant power in Eastern Europe. Despite its victory though, Russia did not figure prominently in the Western European consciousness for a time, though it made cameo appearances in wars between Prussia, Austria and France, as well as continuing to excel at the expense of its Polish rival, it wasn't until the Napoleonic Wars that Russia really began to establish itself as a European fixture. Following the Congress of Vienna that ended those wars, Russia was ensured a place in the political forefront of European dealings, after acquiring the mantle of Saviour of Europe thanks to its Napoleonic victories. The first half of the 19th century was a story of remarkable expansion for Russia, expanding to the southeast and southwest, east, towards Persia and the Ottoman Empire, as well as the remaining Khanates that had originally formed part of the wider Golden Horde. 
Though it had built up a reputation as a preeminent power, the Tsar ruled over an empire living in the past, relying on the principles of serfdom and leaving its vast resources untouched, while Europe embarked on an industrial revolution. Russian armies were still victorious, defeating its Persian enemy in 1813, and playing a large part in ensuring the slow Ottoman retreat from the Balkans, who spat out an independent Greece in 1829. But Russian territorial gains and the grand ambitions of Tsar Nicholas I were slowly eating away at the patience and sensibilities of Britain. Particularly of concern was the Russian ambition to utilise its role as protector of Orthodox Christians to justify seizing the Dardanelles Straits, to liberate Constantinople from Islamic Turkish rule, and preside over a new Russian golden age based on Black Sea commerce and control. This idea, born out of the Greek War of Independence that ended in 1830, would become the core factor behind the Anglo-Russian antagonism that was to become a staple of world affairs for the next near century. However, the inadequacies of the Russian Empire were exposed with the onset of the Crimean War in March 1853, in which Britain and France waged war against Russian ambitions to establish a presence in the Black Sea. A prospect which the Anglo-French alliance upheld was a step towards Russian Mediterranean ambitions thereafter. With Russia defeated by 1856, it appeared as though the Tsar's state would have to rethink its strategy, and indeed it did, with the new Tsar Alexander II abandoning serfdom at last in 1861, and his court largely attempting to redirect it towards Western European ideals, the progress of which ebbed and flowed. In 1867, Alaska was sold to the post-war United States, marking a renewed focus towards Russia's southern border with the Ottoman Empire, and the emergence of new ideas like Pan-Slavism that overtook ideas of Orthodox nationhood. The renewed focus on the Ottoman Empire brought it into conflict with that state for the second time in Alexander's reign, and no doubt to the concern of Britain in 1877. This Russo-Turkish war was notable for its impact on the Balkans, as Bulgaria and Serbia emerged from the conflict, with the former remaining an Ottoman vassal state. Russia's first attempt at forcing a decision to the war came with the Treaty of San Stefano in March 1878, which sought to create an enlarged Russian Bulgaria. Such designs were hampered by British intervention as British statesmen remained focused on Russian ambitions despite the country's splendid isolation, with their eyes firmly on the Dardanelles as in 1853. It resulted in the Congress of Berlin that July, as Germany's Chancellor Otto von Bismarck hosted an international conference tasked with solving the issues of all sides. The result was a resentful pan-Slavic party within Russia who insisted on Russia's future residing in the Balkans and among the Russian destiny to establish itself in the theatre, while the Asiatic party sought better relations with its closer European rivals so as to secure its rear against intrigue while it carved out a new empire in Asia. The two sides to Russian policy remained a cause of concern for Audubon Bismarck, who sought to incorporate Russia into a Three Emperors League in 1873, with Russia joining Germany and Austria-Hungary, and ensuring German security against France. Bismarck's philosophy remained keeping Russia away from France, but such balancing remained difficult while Austria-Hungary and Russia saw each other as rivals in the Balkans, 
with both professing very different aims and justifications for intervention in the region. Events like the Bulgarian crisis in 1885 only served to weaken the links in the Austro-Russian friendship. It was a volatile time for the Balkans, as Serbia and Greece warred against Bulgaria and the latter sought to enlarge itself, only to be transformed upon an Austrian-led coup. The effect of German neutrality in the event did nothing for the Russia-German relationship in the eyes of the Slavophiles though, who blamed Germany and Austria for the part they played in holding Russia back from achieving its Balkan goals, though significant Russian gains were made in the Ottoman Caucasus. The new Tsar Alexander III, coming to power in 1881 after his father was assassinated, was an avid Slavophile determined to pursue Russian Balkan interests, and Bismarck found it difficult to balance his character against the need to maintain an Austro-Hungarian friendship. Thus, with the creation of the Triple Alliance in 1882, which dragged a seemingly reluctant Italy into the alliance with Germany and Austria, and the effect that the Bulgarian crisis had on the Three Emperors League in 1885, Bismarckian diplomacy reached its zenith with the creation of the Reinsurance Treaty in 1887, which tied Russia secretly to Germany, despite the existence of the Triple Alliance, and the 1879 dual alliance between Germany and Austria that overlapped and in many ways contradicted it. It was the result of Bismarck seeking against the grain to maintain ties with Russia at the expense of France, but upon his departure in 1890, the system proved too fragile to maintain without him, and it was not renewed by Bismarck's successor. With the lapsing of any agreement with Germany, the way appeared open for a Russian agreement with France. However, the outcome was far from certain. The severe autocrat, Alexander III, was the antithesis of Republican France, and vice versa. The need to formalise what would already be likely in the event was also an issue. In other words, since a Russia-German war would guarantee French involvement either way, was it entirely necessary to tie oneself down to an official alliance agreement? Furthermore, although both France and Russia shared an interest to oppose British imperialism, the theatres in which they operated were different, with France focused on Africa and Russia on Asia. When it came to the Balkans, was it really possible to evoke French passions there for the sake of Russian interests? Conversely, was it possible to evoke Russian interests in the event of a Franco-German conflict over Alsace-Lorraine? French Mediterranean strategy still revolved around keeping Russia out of Constantinople, just like Britain. Thus, French policymakers wished to restrict Russian ambitions in a key region that St. Petersburg regarded as its sphere of influence. It was difficult for Russian policymakers to justify the shattering of German relations that a formal agreement with France would bring. Though occasional spats over tariffs endured, by sheer geography and power arguments alone, Alexander was persuaded to sign the Reinsurance Treaty in 1887. Just because the latter treaty no longer applied did not mean a 180 in policy was required. Berlin could be utilised in a loose relationship to restrain Vienna and enable Russia to further its ambitions in the Balkans. There was no reason why, sometime in the future, a similar treaty to the Reinsurance one could not be acquired again. On the other hand, though, Bismarck had left the scene, so German foreign and state policy now contained a level of uncertainty, while Germany's young Kaiser, Wilhelm II, was disliked by the restrained Alexander, whom he called a 
rascally young fop. Large French loans made reorientating Russian policy attractive, as did the prospect of French support in Asia, since the French themselves held modern-day Vietnam and remained eager for a firm ally in the region to combat Japan. The real incentive for Russia, though, to sign the Franco-Russian Entente was not down to French enticement, and it was not even down to German mismanagement. It was instead the issue of Russia's 19th century enemy, and the expectation that she may be expanding her horizons by fusing her fortunes to that of Germany, Italy and Austria. Russia entered into the revolutionary new course thus because of the rumours that Britain was seeking to join the Triple Alliance. The July Crisis, and thus the First World War, appear even less inevitable when one considers the state of foreign affairs in 1890. Britain, not Germany, was Russia's major rival in the world at the time, and the feeling was mutual. Far from engendering itself closer to France, Britain had argued with it over African territorial issues for the past five decades as the scramble for Africa reigned. France was truly alone in Europe in 1889 but following the lapsing of the Reinsurance Treaty in 1890 and the Entente with Russia in 1894, it was empowered to act on its own two feet in foreign affairs once more. The result of this change in French fortunes can be traced, curiously, to its British rival. In the Heligoland-Zanzibar Treaty of the 1st of July 1890, Anglo-German statesmen engaged in small-time territorial exchanges as part of what appeared like the beginning of a cordial relationship, necessitated by the fact that the German Kaiser was the grandson of the British monarch, the Eternal Victoria. In summer 1891, Wilhelm visited London, provoking Germanophile outpourings in the British press, as the Standard observed that 11th of July that England and Germany are friends of ancient standing, who would meet future threats with the union of England's naval strength and the military strength of Germany. Britain had, so said the Morning Post, joined the Triple, or rather the Quadruple, alliance. As snippets of these cutouts reached the embassies in London and Paris, Russian ministers were left aghast at the prospect of their formidable military neighbour uniting with their rival in all things imperial and the master of the seas. The French ambassador in St. Petersburg warned the Russians that there would be a continental reapproachment between the cabinets of London and Berlin, the results of which would no doubt have disastrous implications for Russian security. Britain was Russia's chief rival in Afghanistan, Persia and China. If this rivalry was fused with the Russian competition in the Balkans that existed with Austria as part of the Triple Alliance, then Russia would be consistently pressed in its spheres of influence with a combination of forces that far exceeded its own. It caused panic in St. Petersburg, where the once pro-German foreign minister, who had originally sought a renew of the reinsurance treaty the year before, now insisted on putting aside ideological differences to establish a firm French agreement. The very urgency of the situation was reflected in the speed that the agreements were concluded. The fear that the renewal of the Triple Alliance, combined with the more or less probable adhesion of Great Britain to the political aims that this alliance pursues, as the Russian Foreign Minister put it, had motivated Russia and France to quickly seek 
an exchange of ideas to define this attitude of our respective governments. The definition of understanding was signed shortly after this statement in late August 1891, with a Franco-Russian military convention established the following year on the 18th of August, and a Franco-Russian military alliance in its fully-fledged form signed in 1894. The agreement was notable in that it differed from the Triple and Dual Alliances, since it explicitly called for the deployment of forces against a common enemy, rather than a mere consolidation of interests between the powers in question. It appeared, in every sense of the term, a knee-jerk reaction by Russian statesmen, who were so concerned with their security that they accelerated the process of alliance-making to the extent that by its very definition, the Entente now identified Britain and Germany as its key objects. But even after it was created, the Franco-Russian Entente did not guarantee conflict with Germany. The 1890s saw both Russia and France engender the alliance into their respective political and public cultures, but the two remained cautiously separated by divergent policy interests. Since French policymakers knew Russia would thus not fight for Alsace-Lorraine, Paris should not tie itself to Russian obligations in the Balkans. Russia remained determined to ensure that the alliance would not wreck its German relations, and that though St. Petersburg would ensure that France was not destroyed, the primary goal was to ensure Russian freedom of action and restrain French anti-German sentiment. It was China, not the Balkans, which preoccupied Russia during the last decade of the 19th century, where Russia would surely clash with Britain again. The fact also existed that since the Entente had been created because of the suspicion of Britain joining the Triple Alliance, the Franco-Russian Entente did not take on a wholly anti-German character, certainly not from the Russian side. Because of Russian entanglements in northern China, it was virtually guaranteed that St. Petersburg would clash with London's China policy, keeping the antagonism between Russia and Britain alive for the foreseeable future. In a speech to the House of Commons on the 9th of February 1871, preeminent British statesman Benjamin Disraeli delivered a crushing verdict on how the balance of power had changed following the defeat of France. The war represents the German Revolution, Disraeli claimed. A greater political event than the French Revolution of the last century, the balance of power has been entirely destroyed, and the country which suffers more and feels the effects of this change most is England. Disraeli's words here were not, as later historians would attempt to make out, a prophetic account of what Germany was about to bring to the world in 1914 or 1939, but they were instead a cynical analysis of the facts. France was defeated, which meant that she could no longer support Britain in enforcing the terms of the peace treaty that ended the Crimean War in 1856. Upon noting this, Russia began to build another fleet in the Black Sea. Word reached London on the 12th of December, 1870, before peace had even been established between France and Prussia, that Russia was building a second Sevastopol, a new fleet in the Black Sea, only a few miles from Ottoman territory. Disraeli in 1871 understood that Russia had pursued expansion to the Black Sea coast, a process he found reasonable over the past 200 years. However, it was the recent militarization of the Black Sea coast that suggested Russia once again was seeking Ottoman expansion, despite the fact that it had no moral claim to Constantinople and no political necessity to go there. Disraeli reasoned that it was 
not a legitimate, but a disturbing policy. When he spoke about the German Revolution, he did not do so out of concern for German power. He instead wished to prevent Russia repudiating the 1856 peace agreement, a key article of which had been that Russia would cease from militarising the Black Sea, and would build no vessels with military capabilities to press its claim to Turkish territory. Without France in place to enforce the issue, Disraeli thus noted that the German Revolution had dislocated the entire machinery of states. Though Bismarck was able to remain on amicable terms with Britain, whenever London did peer over its splendid isolation-tinted glasses to check up on the Russian issue, it would have noted that Germany appeared to be courting rather than combating Russia. Despite this, Britain would see Russia as its major rival for the next 30 years, with Germany only replacing Russia in this role within the last decade of peace, and even then, only momentarily. While Britain consolidated its power abroad, it remained vigilant of Russia, and began to clash repeatedly with it in China, as the latter retreated from view and other powers picked up the pieces. When Japan defeated China in the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-5, it signified that Japan had superseded its Asian neighbour, and that China was in the grip of a powerful decline aggravated by years of European exploitation. Just as sure as Britain attempted to shore up the Ottoman Empire and prevent its collapse to the benefit of Russia, so too did British policymakers and colonial officials recognise the need to combat the Russian influence in Asia. Russian penetration into Manchuria and its construction of strategic railways, built mostly with French money, seriously concerned British strategists, who held India at the top of the list of places the Tsar was most likely to visit. The problems for Britain grew yet worse with the Boxer Rebellion in 1898-1902, which saw Russia stake its claim to yet more Chinese territory, and seek to expand upon its previous Manchurian gains. While Britain simultaneously fought the Boer War, concern no doubt consumed British statesmen who noted with alarm the Russian ease of access to the Indian subcontinent in comparison to their own. With Russia combating it in Asia and the Far East, and France opposing Britain in Africa, the Entente seemed in practice like a purely anti-British device, which for Russia it effectively was. Such a realisation contributed to a change in policy. The time had come to bring splendid isolation to an end. While Britain sought to close a chapter of its foreign policy, Russia had already opened a new one by actively increasing its Asian holdings. It began to clash notably with the preeminent power of Japan, though due to a combination of factors, racial, theoretical, technological, and yet more racial, it was believed that Russian arms were far superior to whatever the little yellow monkeys, as the atrociously racist Russian memos of the time called the Japanese, could muster. Eyebrows may have been raised with the news that their French ally had signed a series of colonial agreements with their British enemy, with the Entente Cordiale in 1904. However, these were aimed at colonial disagreements, rather than a solidifying of the kind of continental partnership that France and Russia had developed. However, it began to look in St. Petersburg as though French statesmen were perhaps more determined to combat Germany than Russia was to combat Britain because the French foreign minister, Théophile de Classé, was said to have encouraged British policymakers to sign the accord with a catchy tune for London that France would exercise a restraining influence on Russia and may not support Russia 
if the latter picked a fight with Britain. This attempt to ensnare Britain into the Entente in a limited form was pursued with a sense of urgency in Paris because it appeared as though Britain was pursuing the creation of its own alliance bloc aimed squarely at Russia, which would leave France dramatically disadvantaged. The British signing of an alliance with Japan reflected the ideas of mutual self-interest and self-defence prominent at the time. But they were also a landmark event in British foreign policy, since it meant the end of the past five-decade policy of splendid isolation from continental affairs. Britain had used the space provided by her seas to extract herself from these affairs in the last half of the 19th century, and she had used them effectively focusing on consolidation in Asia, India and Africa, and bettering her already considerable empire, with the result that when Queen Victoria did die in January 1901, she presided over the largest empire in the world. This death was a key part of the French concern, because it brought Britain and the state ruled by Victoria's grandson, Germany, closer than ever before. Around 1899-1902, despite the ongoing Boer War that would put a dampener on the proceedings, British policymakers actively pursued the possibility of establishing a German alliance that would link Britain, Germany, and eventually Japan together. The combination of the three powers was designed to combat Russia in Asia and Europe in a potentially lethal cocktail, and the British seeking of it was the result of concerns over Russian penetration in Asia and the need to combat her expansion by surrounding her with hostile neighbours. Whereas France reacted by trying to diplomatically remove the key instigator, Britain, from this initiative, Russian policymakers failed to see the urgency until the possibility of this new triple alliance was staring them in the face. At a time when Wilhelm was making emotionally charged statements, and at a time when the German Chancellor received, on an almost weekly basis, new proposals and terms for an alliance, it seemed as though only French statesmen grasped the gravity of the situation. This was now what happened when Britain felt threatened. It created a league of its own. If France had in fact examined the terms of the alliance which Britain proposed to Germany, then it would see it a little cause to be concerned. Germany, despite its emotional Kaiser and mostly Anglophile press, was not content to settle for the deal London had in mind, which envisioned Germany virtually alone on the continent against France and Russia, with no guarantees for Austria-Hungary or Italy. The Anglo-German talk struggled on, as Britain attempted to conceal that it merely wanted to use German force, and did not actually want to offer a serious deal that could secure Germany's interests. The German Chancellor at the time, Bernard von Bülow, also wished to emphasise to British policymakers in London that Germany would need some kind of incentive for joining in a public alliance with Britain. Such a statement would have been music to the ears of Russia and France. Despite its international reputation and standing, Germany did not wish to show its hand, limit its own options, and incur the antagonism of Britain's major rivals for the sake of limited alliance. The promise of the British Navy was not enough. French policymakers would have informed their Russian allied counterparts that the danger to Russian security was thus minimal. But thoughts in St. Petersburg revolved around the idea that sooner or later Britain would resolve its issues with Germany and settle for an alliance if it was forced to. This was the argument of the Pan-Slavists, 
that Russia should thus focus its efforts on the Balkans to enhance its standing there. Such focus would bring Russia out of conflict with Britain and into conflict with Austria-Hungary, and by extension Germany, but perhaps the latter could restrain the former if incentives were given. On the other hand was the prospect of a limited Russo-German agreement, aimed at eliminating the possibility of an Anglo-German equivalent, proposed then by the Asiatic Party, who lobbied for the Tsar's support and rapprochement with Germany and expansion in the Asian sphere. The Asian Party mostly dominated Tsar Nicholas II's council, as the Tsar, having come to power upon the death of his father Alexander III in 1894, wished to balance German agreements with Dear Willie, as he would later call Wilhelm II, and Russian efforts to expand in Asia. If Russian policy followed the Asian party, friction with Britain and an eventual rapprochement with Berlin were possible outcomes. But if the pan-Slavic party was listened to, Britain may be appeased by default, since because of its Balkan focus, Russia would be seen to have slowed its encroachment on British markets. There was a great deal of ifs, and much depended upon the abilities of the statesmen in each power to balance formal agreements with the personal relationships enjoyed by the sovereigns of each state, such as the Tsar with the Kaiser, for example. Germany was tied to Austria in the Triple Alliance, but if the German policy of the free hand worked, then Russia and Britain would be kept on side by the sheer force of personality of German statesmen and the pull of German power. These theories went largely out the window in 1904 though, when the Japanese launched a surprise war against the sleeping Russian fleet. Having pushed its way to the Pacific, Russian policymakers would now have to pull their attention away from the continent and focus their efforts instead on a preeminent power they had barely considered a credible threat. It very nearly brought the downfall of the entire Russian Empire. On the night of the 8th of February 1904, Admiral Togo Hayakaro's fleet attacked and destroyed the majority of the Russian battle fleet off Port Arthur on the coast of China. Though it was Japan that struck first and thus started the Russo-Japanese War, it was Russian blundering and ignorance that provoked it. Russian dreams of a sweeping Asian empire had been the project of the Asiatic Party in the Tsar's Council, and recently added Tsar Nicholas II as a convert, who pushed wholeheartedly for the course that would, hopefully, enable a simultaneous detente with Germany. Russian expansion into China accelerated with the Chinese decline, and Russia in many ways mirrored the French and British policies of Chinese exploitation that bore witness to a series of horrendous wars in the middle of the 19th century between hopeless Chinese and imperially empowered Western Europeans. However, the real hammer blow came in the Sino-Japanese War of 1894, when Japan defeated the eternal Asian power of China, shocked Western opinion, and set in motion a gold rush in Europe as various powers vied for the spoils of a decaying Chinese administration. It was the Russian and Chinese expansion into Manchuria which ensured that the two were destined to come to blows. The Boxer Rebellion at the start of the century had enabled justification for a large force of 177,000 men to be stationed there supposedly to protect Russian railways, but no sign had been given that these forces were ever going to leave. St. Petersburg, adopting a haughtiness and arrogance in their Japanese dealings, ignored the latter's requests for a clarification of the demarked spheres of influence in the region. Russia, since 1900, 
had pushed beyond North China and south into North Korea, where Japanese policymakers had held a special affinity for as the point from which other Japanese imperial projects could be launched. The war had thus been building quietly in the background, while Russian planners flip-flopped between Asiatic or Slavic, an anti-German or anti-British policy. In 1902, when Britain formalised its alliance with Japan, though it was aimed at Russia and designed to intimidate the latter into recognising the British sphere of influence, what it did was endow Japan with a sense of confidence and a determination to act on its own accord. A masterful level of planning to evict Russia from the region and begin the journey along the path towards Asiatic Empire began. A preemptive attack against the Russian fleet would begin the war, in itself an unusual act for the honour-stricken populations of the world. By destroying Russia's prime Asian force, the fleets in the Baltic and Black Seas would have to be directed all the way around the world to the region, and by then it was hoped that Japan could stake its claim to the regions of Manchuria and Korea, as well as definitively establish a presence as Asia's dominant power. The plan worked flawlessly. By the end of the war, Russia had only its Black Sea fleet, still in anchor, while Japan gained at Russia's expense so severely that the Asiatic party was virtually silenced in the Tsar's court. As Japan propelled itself to the top of the Asian food chain, St. Petersburg was rocked by the defeat, and revolution ran rampant across the Tsar's vast empire on a scale never before thought possible. A force of 300,000 had to be sent to put down revolts in Poland, while pro-democracy demonstrations only ended with the promise from the Tsar that, henceforth, autocracy would be replaced by a representative assembly, and that the Russian Empire would be ruled by a constitutional rather than absolute, monarch. Immediately it was sensed in the capitals of Europe that the situation had changed. Russia was effectively paralysed, with the Tsar's rule so fragile at home that any stresses on the population had to be avoided at all costs. This, Nicholas well knew, meant no war. If war could not be relied upon in the event of a crisis, then France could not rely on Russia to support it in the event of a war with the Triple Alliance. France was thus crippled on the continent until Russia was either able to recover or until an outside power was brought into the Entente to flesh it out and give it some now badly needed strength. But France wasn't the only power that sought to reassess the situation after Russia's defeat. Germany was also considering its now updated hand. Germany had two new cards in this hand. Either it could utilise the fact that Russia was now weakened to force it into an alliance with Germany, or it could use the new opportunities provided by the Russian situation to try to drive a wedge between Britain and France, who had signed their Entente Cordiale in April 1904, three months after Japan attacked Russia. The Kaiser seemed content to pursue the Russian option with the most vigour. In the first few weeks of war, he contacted the Tsar with news that France was supplying the Japanese with raw materials, hardly behaviour becoming of an ally. In June, he told the Tsar that the French Entente with Britain was preventing the French from coming to your aid. Other letters emphasised the bravery and likelihood of success for Russian forces, while Germany also demonstrated practical signs of friendship too. 
Russia's Baltic fleet being allowed to coal along Germany's coastal colonies being the most obvious example. On the 30th of October, a formal alliance was proposed to Russia, stipulating that if a third party attacked either Russia or Germany, then both would attack that third power. This offer, limited in scope and imagination, was declined by the Tsar, who upheld that he would have to inform his French ally should any changes to their agreement be made. By the following year, though, Russia was far more malleable. After having suffered a wave of successive defeats and being snowed under with revolution at home, the Tsar was willing to listen. He came aboard Wilhelm's ship for dinner on the 23rd of July 1905, as the German vessel Hohenzollern moored alongside the Russian ship Polar Star. Wilhelm played his hand expertly, emphasising the unreliability of the French, who would not come to the aid of Russia with its war against Japan, and the underlying threats of Britain that lurked everywhere, including, because of the Entente Cordiale, the French relationship. Nicholas burst into tears and embraced the Kaiser, and actually signed the alliance that united Germany and Russia together. When he returned home, though, Nicholas was convinced by his advisers that his act of emotional impulse was rash, and that to throw away the French alliance, the bedrock of Russian security, would be hazardous and foolhardy in the extreme, and that the French would never agree to any terms which included German offers of alliance. Thus persuaded, Germany lost its first card. Attention was now turned to the issue of the Franco-British Entente. It was certainly remarkable that so much had changed simply because of a Russian defeat. Far from increasing German standing in the long run, it gave Germany an advantage in the short run, which in the end it proved unable to exploit. The case in point was the Moroccan crisis of 1905. The crisis was sparked by the French foreign minister, Théophile del Classé, and his determination to consolidate total French control over Morocco without consulting Germany. Morocco had been recognised by treaty as sovereign in 1881. Within said treaty was the stipulation that the status of Morocco could be changed only by unilateral treaty, in other words, an international conference. Yet by January 1905, Del Casse had placated Spain and Italy with other consolation prizes in Africa, and German interests were not even considered. Legally, then, German policymakers had every right to cry foul. Even those within Del Casse's cabinet saw the exercise as a needless provocation of Germany and a pretty rude thing to do altogether. Del Casse's close collaborator on the Moroccan question, a Frenchman named Paul Revoir, claimed that the great misfortune was that Del Casse, as Revoir put it, felt it was repugnant to have talks with Germany. The Germans are swindlers, he says. But in heaven's name, I'm not asking for an exchange of romantic words or lovers' rings, but for a business discussion. The leader of the French colonial party made a far less humorous comment on the event, noting that Del Casse's policy of ignoring German interests was the height of imprudence. Even with the tense and acidic relationship between Germany and France, there were certain things one did not do forcefully changing the status of a strategically placed African state in the throes of the scramble for Africa was one of those things. In January 1905, a French delegation travelled to Fez in the Moroccan interior to demand French control 
over the apparatus of the Moroccan state, such as the army and police. The Sultan refused. On the 31st of March later that year, Wilhelm himself landed in Tangier amid jubilant crowds, and made a speech in which he insisted that Morocco had the right to sovereignty, and that France was ignoring German interests in a critical region. Gesturing to the integrity and independence of Morocco, he declared that such a status quo should be maintained, and that the Moroccan people would have German backing to maintain it. Two hours later he was gone. If Germany had left it there, then the Moroccan crisis would have been a huge success. After some belligerence, France backed down and sought a peaceful resolution. Britain proved disinterested, meaning that the entire foreign exercise had been vindicated because it painted Britain's new friend in a negative light, while Germany calmly alluded to the international treaties of the time. This was how Bernard von Bülow, Chancellor in Germany, sought to undermine the Anglo-French Entente, since Britain obviously had no interest in standing up for France militarily, that surely suggested that the fallout from the Russian situation was all the more ripe for exploitation. But Bülow overplayed his hand. Hoping to bring the case even more out into the open, a conference attended by the major powers was requested by Germany, and bilateral negotiations on the issue between France and Germany were refused. When they reached the conference, German representatives noted with dismay that the other powers had been bought off by exterior deals, and even their Triple Alliance partner Italy declined to support them, opting instead for French guarantees towards Italian designs on Libya, which Italy would exploit with dramatic results in 1911. Above all, though, the entire exercise painted Germany in a negative light. Britain apparently forgot that the whole crisis had been of Del Casse's making, and saw instead German attempts to sabotage the Entente Cordiale as a threat to British interests. After all... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Part of the Entente Cordiale had swapped French recognition for a British-dominated Egypt for British recognition of a French-dominated Morocco. By acting behind the back of Germany, France lost British support. 
but by dragging the process on, Germany exposed itself. The orchestration of a conference had been designed to widen the gap between France and Britain by making Britain vote against France. British realisation of this meant that the Entente Cordiale grew stronger, not weaker, and that Germany was left in an even worse position by the end of 1905 than it had been in 1904, despite the fact that its major rival in Russia was now a virtual non-entity in European dealings. Events appeared to be spiralling out of control for Germany when Russia signed the 1907 Convention with Britain, which had aimed, like France's equivalent deal with Britain, to iron out the creases and problems that stemmed from colonial tensions, especially in Persia. Russian weakness following the loss to Japan played a large part in its susceptibility to British overtures, but France played the greatest role in drawing the two parties together, hoping to, in the end, turn the arrangement against Germany. A long road was ahead in Anglo-Russian negotiations, though. Had Russian statesmen not been mindful of their own state's limitations, then they may never have materialised. But with new statesmen at the helm and a new system of government, following the revolutions of 1905, the possibility for a rapprochement appeared never greater. The oft-stated version of events reads that, following the loss to Japan and the ballooning of German power, Britain recognised that it had no choice but to settle its debts with its long-time Russian enemy and combine against the new German threat. However, the truth suggests less a British attempt to offend Germany, rather than an attempt to defend itself, again not from Germany, but from Russia. Russia was still the biggest and widest ranging threat to British interests in 1907, even with its loss to Japan. Russia could bear down upon India through Persia, which was perhaps the greatest nightmare of British statesmen in the period. To neutralise this option, Britain opted for a diplomatic approach towards its enemy, rather than an attempt to increase its friends. Part of the reason for this change in policy came from French pressures on both sides, but also Russia's loss to Japan and the willingness of its statesmen to listen, as well as the prominence of the Russian Slavic party who wished to focus on the Balkans in the near future, now that Asia was no longer possible. The logic of this convention is best explained by those that signed it. Sir Charles Harding, a senior foreign office official, held a conversation with Sir Arthur Nicholson, who would soon replace him and play a prominent role in the diplomacy of the pre-war months. In March 1909, Harding stated that, We have no pending questions with Germany, except that of naval construction, while our whole future is bound up with maintaining the best and most friendly relations with Russia. We cannot afford to sacrifice in any way in our taunt with Russia, even for the sake of a reduced naval programme. Harding would impart these lessons onto his successor, who would adopt stringently, at any cost, the policy of maintaining a Russian friendship. Up until the moment that Germany declared war on Russia, Britain remained suspicious and fearful of Russian intentions and power. It was not an anti-German policy that led Britain to sign unprecedented deals with Russia. It was instead the questions that Russia posed to the British Empire and its security, which British policymakers felt could be better answered with amiable words than hostile deeds. The governing situation in Russia after the 1905 revolutions deserves mention because it helps to further explain this foreign policy course for Russia. 
following the revolutions of 1905, in which the Russian Empire was swept up in a chaotic mix of protest and violence, a new parliament of sorts was set up, which was designed, publicly, to limit the power of the Tsar and usher in a new period of constitutional monarchy a la Britain, but in reality ushered in a new era of Russian political intrigue. A group of powerful and influential ministers within the Russian government moved to exert yet more influence in Russian affairs, and they sought to create a council of ministers, where the chair of this council would essentially be the Prime Minister of Russia. No longer would the Tsar be able to claim the sole directive in either foreign or domestic policy, though his approval was still highly important for these new ministers. Within this vague arrangement emerged a party that sought to maintain the old order of autocracy, and a newer party that sought to modernise Russia and reform its governmental style. The Council of Ministers itself was a strange arrangement, because though in theory the chairman of the group could dismiss an uncooperative minister, and if he was strong enough could impose his will on the ministers, what could also happen was a charismatic member of the council acquiring the ear of the Tsar and breaking out to form his own policy. The right of individual report was such a clause that enabled such freedom for the ministers. It meant that any member of the council could request an audience with the Tsar, wherein he could put forward his own deals, and in some cases, persuade the monarch of his views. The most important ministers on this council were Alexander Rizvalsky, who occupied the position of foreign minister in 1906, Vladimir Kakovstov, sometimes minister of finance and eventual prime minister in 1911, and Peter Stolopin, chairman of the council and thus prime minister of Russia from 1906 to 1911. All of these figures had differing views as to how the foreign policy of the country should play out. Izvolsky, for example, wished to defer more to the opinion of the Tsar when contemplating Russian policy. As seen in his communication with the Tsar during the Russo-Austrian reproach Amman that led to the Bosnian crisis in 1908-09 and cost Izvolsky his job. The removal of Izvolsky suggested that a new course in Russian foreign policy may be pursued though since Izvolsky was one of those Russian statesmen who argued that the reconciliation with Britain gave Russia the opportunity to pursue a more assertive foreign policy, whereas his colleagues on the Council of Ministers, men like Akovstov and Stolopin, argued that it signified a time for withdrawal from adventurous policy and a focus on domestic affairs. Izvolsky had made it his mission to pursue a policy of detente with Britain, so as to hopefully grant Russia a free hand in the Dardanelles, where Russian concerns were encompassed in the years before the war. Sir Edward Grey, British Foreign Secretary, had told the Russian ambassador in March 1907 that if permanent good relations were to be established, England would no longer make it a settled object of its policy to maintain the existing arrangement in the Straits. Armed with this statement, Izvolsky embarked upon the policy of detente with the Austrian Foreign Minister Arenthal that would lead to the Bosnian crisis and spell the end of Izvolsky's posting. The problem in this event was that, though Grey had alluded to it being a possibility, Russian relations with Britain had entered a level of lukewarm give and take, largely through a combination of British fear, Russian weakness and French prodding. It was not a course of foreign policy that was popular throughout the British government, and it was seen as distinctly anathema to previous years of British foreign policy which had sought to contain, rather than co-opt, Russia. 
With the replacement of his Volsky, it seemed like the Anglo-Russian conciliation may be a permanent issue though, since Chairman Stolopin was able to exert his influence on the successor as foreign minister, an inexperienced Sergei Sazonov, and effectively craft Russian foreign policy to his liking. What his liking turned out to be was a conciliatory tone on every front, not just with Britain but with Germany as well. Despite the after-effects of the Bosnian crisis, which had been diffused by the infamous St. Petersburg note that had threatened Russia with the possibility that events may take their course if she did not back down, rapprochement was the order of the day so long as Stolopin was in office. It resulted in the Tsar and Sergei Sazonov making a visit to meet the German Emperor and his foreign minister in person in November 1910. Had Stolopin remained in office, it is easy to speculate what may have become not just of the Anglo-German-Russian issues, but also of the very alliance system which posed them on different sides. However, on the 18th of September 1911, Stolopin was assassinated by terrorists, throwing the whole Russian policy-making process into disarray. When Stolopin was assassinated, Sazanov had been convalescing from a long-term illness since March, and he was thus absent to fill in the power vacuum. His undersecretary and replacement until he returned was equally unable to deal or keep up with what happened next, because merely days after Stolopin's death, Italy delivered its ultimatum to the Ottoman Empire, and soon after attacked Libya. This act brought a new vulnerability to the Ottoman state, and it also dramatically left the Russian foreign ministry at a disadvantage. The reins of ministerial government and its influences slacked notably enabling ministers abroad to assert their own level of authority and attempt to shape events in their own right. One of these men was the Russian ambassador in Constantinople, who believed that because of the Turkish weakness, Russia could wrest concessions and better terms for the straits from her. The other Russian statesman was the ambassador to Serbia, who viewed the unfolding events in Libya as a chance to cultivate a Balkan League and strike at Turkey's embattled Balkan territories. His name was Nikolai Hartwig. While the Russian ambassador in Constantinople sought to establish a deal whereby Russia would recognise Turkish possession of Constantinople and of a defensible Thracian frontier in return for a deal that would enable Russian warships freedom of passage through the Dardanelles Straits, a deal which Britain would even have now vehemently opposed, Nikolai Hartwig was seeking a very different goal. Russian foreign policy was characterised on the one hand by the Conservatives, who wished to pull back on Russian foreign commitments and be aware of the dangers of pursuing, as Kokovstov, now the Prime Minister, put it, an active foreign policy at the expense of the peasant's stomach. On the other hand were the Nationalists, or Pan-Slavists, who favoured a forward policy in the Balkans and the Turkish Straits, and the expansion of Russian power there. Conservatives were aware of the weaknesses in Russian politics and the fragile nature of its domestic makeup. Nationalists seemed to believe that only by projecting its power abroad could Russia be made and maintained as a strong force. An example of the split can be seen in a debate which took place after the Bosnian crisis, in which the Duma, or Russian parliament, saw conservative interests represented by the Council of United Nobility while the Nationalists and Pan-Slavists were represented by the Constitutional Democratic Party. The former argued that Russia should withdraw from interference in the Balkans, 
and that Russian prestige had not been damaged by the Bosnian affair, that the real enemy was Britain, who still opposed Russian ambitions, and that reconciliation with Berlin should be acquired to balance London out. The latter argued instead that the Triple Entente should be advanced into a Triple Alliance, so that Russia could never again be pressured by Germany, like it had been in the St. Petersburg note, while its members used their pro-British and French opinions to attempt to rally other ministers to their side by suggesting that only through the Entente could the Balkans be acquired and Russia's great power status protected. It was thus going to be a difficult balancing act for Sergei Sazonov when he did return from his illness in late 1911, but he didn't waste any time in selecting Russia's course. He disavowed the Russian ambassador in Constantinople and recalled him because of the intel he had received, which suggested that a renewed Russian move on the Straits, at a time when Anglo-Russian tensions were mounting over Persia, would excite Franco-British opinion against Russia. The winter of 1911-12 was bearing witness to a reigniting of the Persian question, and Sazonov feared that acting in Constantinople now would isolate Russia from its British partners. France was another concern, because when the issue at Morocco had flared up again in 1911 and the Russian support for its French ally appeared lukewarm, the Franco-Russian ties loosened notably for the first time. It was well known that France had invested much capital in Ottoman territory, and Sazonov thus thought it doubtful that she would approve any move to weaken Turkey financially. It was more likely that Britain and France, though hardly the best of friends in 1911, would take offence to the Russian moves and either distance themselves further from Russia as one, or pressure St. Petersburg together to drop its demands, which either way would mean Russia would leave with nothing. Sazonov thus opted by default to follow the course of Hartwig. The very fact that Sazonov would not support any attack on the Straits in case it proved provocative to Britain or France, only to then support an attack against the Ottomans in a different region, suggests a level of contradiction inherent within Russian foreign policy. Such contradictions had been running rampant for months. The Russian ambassador in Bulgaria had originally opposed the construction of a Balkan League because he had feared it would slip out of Russian control. The original alliance between Bulgaria and Serbia that would form the basis of the eventual League War in October 1912 was signed in March 1912, and its terms stipulated almost complete control by Russia over Serb-Bulgarian actions. Russia would be able to veto proposals, coordinate any post-war settlements, and be the arbiter in their negotiations, while it would provide the final voice in the event that Bulgaria and Serbia couldn't decide on when to launch the war. All decisions of the alliance, including partition, were to be submitted to Russian policy makers. Russia wanted to control the expected turmoil that would result from Ottoman weakening in the Balkans. Sazonov believed Hartwig could control events through a Balkan League of Serbia and Bulgaria that Russia would administer and effectively direct. However, the original opposition of the Russian ambassador to Bulgaria upheld that Russia would be powerless to stop either Balkan state if both Serbia and Bulgaria agreed together and went to act against the Ottomans. Furthermore, uncertainty about other Balkan states who were not yet included in the agreement may remove Russia's ability to control it at all. In the event, not only did the Serb-Bulgarian alliance makers agree on the date for the war against Turkey, but they also did so after co-opting the support of Greece and Montenegro.
Now, the two-state Balkan alliance was a four-state Balkan league, and the original body Hartwig believed he could control had mutated into a monster that would annihilate the old Balkan order. Because they had acted without Russian approval, when the Serbian ambassador to France met with Sazanov in late October 1912, days after the war begun, he was greeted with a harsh reception. Sazanov informed the Serb statesmen that war should be brought to a swift end and contained thereafter. The Serb ambassador, while a large deputation of French officials were present, then replied that he did not understand the order, since it had been Sazanov who had given the go-ahead for war in the first place. Sazanov, no doubt flustered amidst having been exposed, explained hastily to both the Serb and the French that he had approved only the initial treaty of alliance between Bulgaria and Serbia, which was merely defensive, itself an outright lie. Russian diplomacy was thus content to play the dual role of instigator and peacekeeper, and as Sazanov attempted to apply his confused rationale of what Russia wanted, such contradictions would only get worse. The early months of the First Balkan War in late 1912 further attest the inconsistency of Sazanov. At the end of October, he expressed his support for maintaining the territorial status quo of the Balkans, much to the contentment of Habsburg statesmen. However, on the 8th of November, he emphasised to the Italian government the necessity of Serbian access to the Adriatic, adding that, It is dangerous to ignore facts. Three days later, Sazanov was going back on this, declaring that the creation of an independent Albanian state on the Adriatic was a necessity. Adding again that, to ignore facts is dangerous. Hartwig was told by Sazanov to tell Nikola Pesic, the Serbian Prime Minister, that if Serbia pushed too hard, Russia would not be able to assist them, and that they would be left to their own devices. However, by the 17th of November, Sazanov was arguing once more for a Serbian corridor to the Adriatic coast. Little wonder that the British ambassador complained, Sazanov is so continually changing his ground that it is difficult to follow the successive phases of pessimism and optimism through which he passes. I have more than once protested to Sazanov about the inconsistency and frequent changes of front. A lesser British diplomat put it more bluntly though when he stated, Sazanov is a sad wobbler. A crisis in late 1912 again brought the inconsistencies of Sazanov into the open but this time they were compounded by the varied nature of the Russian ministerial government. Behind the scenes, the Russian Minister for War had been advocating mobilisation against Austria-Hungary, so as to pressure the latter to remain docile during the Balkan Wars, when it became clear that Nicholas II no longer supported the new Russian Prime Minister Kukovstov and his specific measures, and that the Tsar was now a member of the War Party. It began as an attempt to scare Vienna into backing down but when the latter responded in kind, a military escalation began, at enormous financial cost to both sides, in which it seemed as though both were taking concrete steps towards a general war. The major opposition to war came from Kukovstov, but because the foreign minister Sazanov and the war minister supported the course of escalation, and because the Tsar supported them, the Russian prime minister was ignored, something which serves as a testament to the unusual nature of Russian government. Russia was pulled back from war by Sazanov eventually, and thus the Tsar was restrained as well, but the entire incident brought out into the open the uncomfortable fact for Kukovstov that he could be circumvented if enough ministers disagreed with the Prime Minister's policy. 
Sazonov remained as foreign minister, the influential force behind Russian policy, and his ability to effectively override Kakovstov was made all the more unfortunate by the fact that Sazonov appeared unsure of what he really wanted during these crisis years, and that at many times he seemed content to simply play with controversy. As late as January 1913, Sazonov told the British ambassador to Russia that he had a project for mobilising on the Austrian frontier, and that plans for keeping on reservists and banning the sale of horses were underway. Later in the month, it was suspected that Sazonov was in the process of crafting an ultimatum for Vienna to adhere to, a step which would have drastically increased the tension between both states. Balkan entanglements made Sazonov, and consequently Russia's policy, all the more confused. Having remained indecisive for years on whether to throw its full support behind Bulgaria or Serbia, the Balkan League appeared to grant Sazonov the chance to support both. However, when Bulgaria advanced too rapidly towards Constantinople for Sazonov's liking, and when the Second Balkan War saw Bulgaria collapse under pressure from all sides, Serbia seemed the best choice for the region. Sazonov had little love for the Bulgarian sovereign, who had proclaimed himself Tsar in a lavish ceremony that announced Bulgarian independence from Ottoman rule in 1908. Ferdinand of Saxe-Coburg, Bulgaria's opportunistic Tsar, was not well liked at St. Petersburg, and was certainly not liked by Sazonov, who much preferred the Serbian king Peter. Ferdinand seemed content to flip-flop between German and Russian friendship, but the Balkan wards had seen him catastrophically ruin his country. Having suffered more than any other state in the wars, and no doubt aware of the Franco-Russian support of Serbia, Bulgaria sought help from alternative sources. In March 1914, German financial backers approved a Bulgarian loan that would rescue the state's desperate finances, and seemed to suggest the latter's eventual incorporation into the Triple Alliance. Russian efforts to offset the loss of Bulgaria manifested themselves in Romania, where the Russians are visited on the 14th of June 1914. The consequence was a further weakening of Austria's influence in the Balkans. It also meant that Romanian irredentists would focus their efforts not on the Russian Bessarabia territory to the north, but on the Transylvania region in Hungary. When Sazonov asked the Romanian premier what attitude Romania would adopt, in the event of an armed conflict between Russia and Austria-Hungary, if Russia should find itself obliged to commence hostilities. The Romanian statesman was said to have been visibly shocked, and gave an evasive reply. When Sazonov pressed him further, he was able to wrest from the Romanian that Bucharest and St. Petersburg had a common interest in preventing any weakening of Serbia, a reply which was good enough for Sazonov. The Russo-Romanian rapprochement was viewed by one French representative as a new means for Russia of applying pressure to Austria. It is important to note that much of these foreign policy courses were not a long time in the making. Sazonov firmly believed that Tsar Ferdinand of Bulgaria gave his support to the pro-German Bulgarian faction, for which we have no atom of respect, only because Bulgaria desperately needed German money and that in the coming years the entire orientation of the Balkans could change. This may well have been the case, if Ferdinand's record is anything to go by, but the point is that the state of affairs was such, in summer 1914, that Serbia and Romania were in the Russian camp, and Bulgaria was in the German. An event in December 1913 furthered the sense of crisis in St. Petersburg, 
and went a long way towards convincing the pro-war party in the ministerial council about the need to launch a preemptive war, not against Britain, but against the Ottoman Empire. A lesser-known fact in the years preceding the war was the level of importance Russia attached to the Straits. Such policy is often lost in the assumptions that Russia was either competing with Austria in the Balkans or Britain in Persia, both of which are true, but which overshadow Russia's other strategic concerns which, even after so many years, had lost none of their urgency. Following the crisis that was unleashed in the Balkan Wars, not only did Russia experience firsthand the dangers that a wartime Ottoman Empire would impose on its prosperity when Constantinople elected to cut off access to the Straits to all powers, but the Ottomans themselves came to the realisation that, with their army in tatters and their prospects for the Balkans ruined, serious military reforms were needed. Thus emerged in late 1913 the doubly ominous result that the Russians felt their position in the Black Sea insecure, and the Ottomans felt the pressing need to reinforce their power there. This translated itself into the Lehman Sanders mission, in which German Lieutenant General Lehman von Sanders was appointed commander of the Ottoman First Army Corps, and travelled to Constantinople along with 40 other on-duty German officers. Initially it seemed an innocent enough gesture. Ottoman-German links were well known in Europe, and Germany had invested much time and resources in Turkish railways, which seemed like the best way for pre-war European states to integrate themselves towards each other. When word of the event reached St. Petersburg though, it caused a storm. St. Petersburg saw the entire event as one which would place Germany in control of a failing empire in her corner of Europe that remained a Russian obsession, while fear also began to emerge that German interference would empower the Ottoman Empire, the decline and weakness of which had been built into Russian strategy in the region, and which would have meant that Russia would have to reinvent itself should Turkey suddenly be able to resist Russian advances alone. Such resistance was in fact what the Kaiser had hoped to develop. When it emerged that he had told von Sanders, as he left for the Ottoman capital, to build him a strong army that would obey my orders, and form a counterweight to the designs of Russia, there was an uproar. In a conversation with the German ambassador, Sir Edward Grey noted, in reference to the Russians, that I have never seen them so excited. The prospect excited the Russians because 37% of their raw material exports passed through the Black Sea while between 75 and 80% of their food exports passed through also. St. Petersburg had always upheld its importance, but the disturbances in the Balkan Wars brought the issue home, as Russian commerce was cut off from the Straits as the beleaguered Ottomans tried to plug the gaps in their defence. Disruptions were one thing though. Russian predictions about what would happen should the region fall to another power able to resist Russian pressure was another. Russia had an interest in ensuring that, if they could not possess them, then no other power, save the anemic Turkey, could. Not even the Bulgarians were given quarter when they appeared close to Constantinople. And if Russia was willing to treat its allies in such a fashion when they threatened the Straits question, it is hardly surprising to see how they treated their opposing alliance bloc rival. Added to the concern was the prospect of Turkish naval rearmament, courtesy of Britain who was in the midst of selling Turkey one dreadnought class of battleship, and had plans to sell two more at least. The prospect of such a deal, which would dramatically disadvantage Russian freedom of access in the region, was a result of Turkish acknowledgement of its own weakness, and the need to increase its strength. 
It is odd to note that Russia did not seek to militarise the Black Sea as the Ottomans appear to be trying to do. But then, as in 1856, with the close of the Crimean War, Russia remained pressured by Britain to cease from militarising the Black Sea and granting itself enough strength from where it could seize the Straits by force. Russia was banging heads with Britain in enough areas already, and its policy makers would have known that only more tension would have resulted from a fresh attempt to militarise the region. Yet, as the Russians could clearly see, Turkey was not content to simply twiddle its thumbs. Instead, it had grand plans to defend itself and bulk up its defences. If these proposed vessels arrived, then Russia could kiss its plans for an easy seizure of the Straits goodbye, since Turkey, not Russia, would possess naval superiority in the region. The clock appeared to be ticking then, in 1914, for a solution to the Turkish rearmament. Russia's Entente allies were not moved by Sazonov's protests, and both Britain and France possessed their own justification for not viewing the situation in the same terms as Russia. Sir Edward Grey, reminding his Russian counterparts of British preoccupation with the Irish question, noted his attention was focused elsewhere, but British policymakers seemed more concerned at the spreading of French capital in the region, rather than the issue of Turkish control over their own straits. Meanwhile, the French themselves reiterated that it made perfect sense for the Germans to seek to command the forces in the region, since previous efforts had failed in Constantinople to produce results thanks to the lack of total cooperation between Germany and Turkey. Because of their own financial investments there, France was content to see Turkish power increased, leaving, it seemed to Sazonov, only Russia to cry foul. He sent an angry message on the 12th of December 1913 to the Russian ambassador in London, in which he complained that the lack of solidarity between the powers of the Entente arouses our serious concern. He wired a further telegram to the Tsar on the 23rd of that month, in which he militaristically advised escalating the tension, stating that the Entente powers should seize and occupy certain points of Asia Minor and declared that they would stay there until their demands were met. Russian concern almost exploded when a conversation between Grey and the Russian ambassador to London revealed the extent of British involvement in the Dardanelles. As the British naval training mission, led by Admiral Arthur Limpus, of which the Russians were aware of, but not of its extent. Limpus's training mission involved increasing Turkey's naval capabilities and strength, and improving their prospects for a future war, so as to make it hazardous for the Russians to move troops across the Black Sea, as Limpus himself understood it. In other words, Limpus's mission, though it had begun in 1912, now appeared like a coordinated assault alongside the von Sanders mission to shore up Turkey against Russia. It provoked an outcry Germany scarcely expected, and led to an eventual backing down in Berlin. Sazonov was furious at the entire event. Why were Russia's neighbours and her supposed allies so blatantly interfering in her affairs? He called a conference in January 1914 which proposed drastic measures, which would have surely catapulted Europe towards war, and may not have seen France and Britain on Russia's side, considering the interests both now had in the region in their own right. In the event though, thanks to German backtracking this situation was diffused, though not without seriously revealing, in Sazonov's mind, how falsely loyal his Entente partners were, and, in Anglo-French eyes, how ready Russia appeared to make war over the slightest provocation. Sazonov, in particular, had begun to leave behind his old Pacific tone, and after this whole affair, he'd adopted a whole new policy towards Germany, 
which involved the narrative of an oppressed Russia bullied by Berlin, but no more, because Russia was now going to stand up against her. It seemed to hammer the final nail in the coffin for Russo-German relations. The Tsar observed in April 1914 that, It was commonly supposed that there was nothing to keep Germany and Russia apart. This was not the case. There was the question of the Dardanelles. Nicholas II was not alone in fearing that Germany was seeking to shut St. Petersburg off from the Black Sea, and Sazonov felt it imperative that the Entente stood together against such action, and that Britain and France recognise in the event of war what such a result would mean for Russia if the Straits were in hostile hands. The Kaiser, on the other hand, remarked categorically that Russo-Prussian relations are dead for all time. We have become enemies. Following the German withdrawal and its fraught diplomacy, a level of bitterness now emerged which suggested that Berlin should instead have pressed the issue. This resentment in turn led to the belief that Russia, next time, had to be challenged in whatever crisis emerged. Back in Russia, the Prime Minister Kakovstov was dismissed, since his pacific policy with the Germans now sank in popularity. As the Warhawks gained, thanks to the German withdrawal, and his colleagues appeared better in control of the situation. It wasn't necessarily Kakovstov's fault. In fact, it was more due to the very strange nature of the ruling Russian council. But what it meant for Russia was that Kakovstov's conciliatory policy and influence were now absent, to be replaced with a friend of Sazonov's hardline policy, a fact that Berlin remained unaware of until it was too late. Sazonov would have known that the main event in its foreign relations remained the thorniest issue. Britain, though tempered by the Entente and pacified somewhat with the 1907 convention, was still Russia's most present enemy abroad. Not only that, but since the loss to Japan had ruled out Asian freedom, Russian policymakers became more inclined to look elsewhere. Looking elsewhere included the Balkans, which weren't as big an issue to Britain as that of Persia where Russia and Britain banged heads in the years before World War I to an incredible degree. Though on paper the two were in the same block of friendly states, in reality much remained contested between the two, and the idea that Russia was a docile ally to Britain following its loss to Japan is revealed as pure fantasy when one looks at the awe and fear in which Britain still held Russian political and military power. From Tibet to Outer Mongolia to the Chinese border, Questions were raised in London about Russian penetration of the region, and as early as November 1911, British Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey warned the Russian ambassador to Britain that he may soon be forced to make public disavowals of Russian policy in the Persian region, and that Russia was placing the 1907 convention at risk. These issues attracted attention in the press, and among British political thinkers. The contrast between what Russia was supposed to be, Britain's friend, and what it actually was, Britain's imperial rival, were public knowledge, to the extent that when Sazonov and Grey met in September 1912 for talks about Persia, the British public protested against the Russian foreign minister's visit. Fears for Britain's imperial future, combined with acute Russophobia, that was prominent in the British press, to form a troubling mix. In letters that he sent to his ambassador in St. Petersburg, Grey commented angrily on Russian plans to build a railway all across Persia to the Indian frontier. Grey complained that Russia had pushed aside British concerns in the region, 
and had thus repudiated the 1907 terms, and concluded that French help may be required to even get the Russians to listen. Meanwhile, British agents had detected Russian arms passing through mountain ranges and en route to Tibetan armies, who trained only 150 miles from the Indian border, and were said to be spurred on to practice unusual military activity in the area by the Russians. To the imperialists, it seemed as though St. Petersburg was merely waiting for the chance to strike India. It was because of such concerns over the dangers posed by Russia that Gray finally began to warm to the idea of a detente with Germany. Gray's stance was reinforced by the fact that by 1914, Germany had definitively lost the naval race, and thus the last menacing barrier to Anglo-German friendship appeared broken. The return to a policy that accommodated Berlin would hopefully balance St. Petersburg, and enable Britain to possess more leverage when it dealt with the Russians. However, the Lehman-Sanders crisis had illustrated to Russian policymakers not only the pressing need to act in the Straits, but also how far Britain and France were from supporting Russian ambitions there. Russia would not be able, Sazonov gleaned from the event, to justify a war against Turkey with the sole aim of seizing the Straits, not if she wanted to count Britain and France in her corner. Instead, the seizure of the Straits would have to form part of a wider European war that could be initiated or answered in another region of the world, and extended to the Straits when necessary. The view began to emerge that if Russia won on the primary, let's say, Western Front, then the seizure of the Straits would fall into place. At the war conference in February 1914, notably taking place for the first time without Kukovstov's voice, the head of the operations section of the Russian Navy noted that while Russia warred against its western enemies, another rival may sneak into its backyard and steal the straits from under its nose. In a veiled reference to Britain, the Admiral warned that foreign fleets and armies may occupy the region while Russia bled for the Entente in the west. Thus emerged the development from the Lehman-Sanders crisis of closer Anglo-Russian naval cooperation. This is generally observed by historians as a reaction of the two Entente friends to German provocations, and the Russian need to ensure the straits against attack. However, more realistic assessments of the situation suggests that Sazonov hoped to tie Britain closer to Russia, and in the process prevent any further British incentives in the straits region such as the aforementioned aiding and increasing of Ottoman naval power. For St. Petersburg, as was the case in London, the imperial and strategic rivalry between the old enemies was still very much alive. Both knew deep down that they had far from one enemy, and that it often paid, much like the cliché suggests, to keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Such concerns of Russian betrayal and the dangers they still posed were no doubt at the forefront of the mind of the French president Raymond Poincaré, who was determined to make it his mission to maintain the years of diplomatic work that had brought Russia and Britain, theoretically, to the same side. For the sake of French security, Poincaré knew that he would have to allay British concerns, and he thus felt that a face-to-face meeting with the Russian Tsar and his foreign minister would produce the best results. On Poincaré's mind also were the political events at home that threatened his departure, but he remained fixed on the idea of gaining a solid commitment from the Tsar to appease British problems, so that the reconciliation of the two chafing empires, which formed the backbone of the Triple Entente, 
would last longer than the summer of 1914. It was perhaps to Poincaré's fortune that events elsewhere would take the responsibility of persuasion out of his hands, since the creaking and shaking triple entente would soon be faced with an issue greater than its own internal problems, and one which had been manufactured miles away from Poincaré's consciousness in Vienna. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.